On this week's Devils in the Details, we've missed four whole matches, but fear not because we're here to break each of them down for you, both the wins and the losses, and where they put Eric Ten Hag's Manchester United in this extremely weird period. Case, I can't believe it. United actually won a game, and it took a brace from Scott McTominay to get it over the line. How have you felt the last two weeks? Because personally, I'm super confused. Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick a few words to describe my feelings, um, despair, agony, <laughs> utter confusion. Um, yep. I could go on. I think those three capture most of it, though. Uh, Yeah, that sounded pretty good to me. (laughs) Yeah. No, I was going to say, before we get into the despair, agony, and confusion, I think we should do some admin, because we have missed an upload, and I feel like recently we've been uploading a lot on Tuesdays, and I feel like putting it on the podcast will entice us to, to get back to regular Mondays. So, just for clear transparency, unless United kick off on a Monday, our plan is to be uploading on Mondays. Case and I just have very busy lives, and sometimes we don't get to record on Saturday or Sunday. But for the most part, the intent here is that we should be uploading for you Monday morning. You wake up, this podcast is in your inbox. Um, We have not achieved that lately, but yeah. (laughs) All right, let's get into these four matches, starting with the win over Crystal Palace. This was the first of this, I'd say, period of matches where United have kind of looked different um, tactically as a result of some introductions to the team um, in the form of new players. Um, in particular, Regulon got injured and was replaced by the incoming Sofian Amrabat, who was playing at left-back despite his primary position being defensive or central midfield. Um, and then Mason Mount came back into the team from his injury that has set him back since the first few games of the season. Case, how much of an impact do you think Amrabat and Mount's inclusion in this match Uh, had on United's ability to dominate Crystal Palace and ultimately come away with a really comfortable win here? I think it had a huge effect. Obviously, in the, you know, when you have the other three games that ensued as added context, it seems like, oh, maybe perhaps we we overreacted to that. But I I really don't think so. I think, for the most part, Amrabat and Mount have been really good in the ensuing three matches. I think they make this team far, far better, especially Mount in the final third and Amrabat in the middle third. Uh, and defensive third, I think he's been generally good defensively with the exception of really one or two moments that I can remember. Uh, you can see he's, he's far too willing to foul, like we discussed. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it was huge in, the, in this particular match. You, you saw United really connecting, linking attacks, transitioning into the final third, creating chances, uh, which is, you know, th- this was, this, this Palace match, this, this performance in the cup was the best performance United have put together. Uh, the season, and obviously it was against a pretty weak Palace side, but you ha- you have to beat what's in front of you, and it was a good step at the time. Obviously, we're looking at it very differently now. Yeah, I think United largely dominated these four matches. We'll talk about Galatasaray in a bit because that was a bit of a weird one, but 
largely United were the better side, which is why I don't think the fact that Amrabat and Mount have exerted um, such an influence on that is going to come up that much in the next three matches, because we're not going to have this discussion four times on this episode. Um, but yes, Mason Mount, for me, we've talked about this. We're both big fans of his technical game. We're both big fans of his out-of-possession game. We're both big fans of his game in the final third. I think all of those things have played out in these matches, both when United have been good and when they've been bad. Um, we saw him playing right wing in the last match. I think that might be something we see again. Yeah, Mount, Mount is just a really good player. He's going to add a lot to this team and add some of the technical ability that I think we've seen has been missing from this side, especially in midfield. Amrabat, I think we've seen a little more strengths and weaknesses from Amrabat, but I think the key focus point for this match is that his ability to manipulate the ball under pressure, um, create opportunities to carry into space and take them, progress the ball with his passing, but also retain the ball highly effectively, has pretty much changed how this team looks in early build-up phases, whenever they can get him on the ball. I'm personally really excited to see him with players like Lissandro and Shaw once they're back. Yeah, I agree. Um... I agree. However, I do think we need to focus here on what's... I, I, I Obviously, you know, I want us to get healthy. I want to talk about the theoretical best case. But for me, I think we're so far from the theoretical best case right now that I, I want to... I agree with you, but I want to focus on sort of the negatives, <laughs> which is a bit out of character, but... No, I mean, I think that's fair. I... I feel like this is the wrong match to do it. I mean... I agree. Quickly, I agree. from this match... I'm also going to throw in that Garnacho started and scored a goal here. Um, I think Garnacho is also very, very good out of possession. Do you think Garnacho is starting to get into a place where he's contending to play more minutes than he was last season? I feel like early in the season he was thrown straight into the side with very little success. But now that he's had a little bit of time off and he's slowly coming back into the team, I feel like we've seen a string of quite impactful performances from him, some off the bench. But in this match, I thought he was pretty good, and he started. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent that's quality of opposition. Uh, but I would have no problem with Garnacho getting more minutes, longer substitute appearances. For me, he's still not, nowhere near as impactful as Rashford is in possession, even with Rashford's deficiencies. But you're right, he's much better out of possession. I wouldn't mind if, if you know, he starts getting, you know, halftime, like, you know, you put him on a halftime. Uh, because I do think he adds something to this team. I, he's a very exciting player. There's a lot to, like, the, a really odd thing about this bizarre two weeks we've had is that there are a lot of positives in the space of, like, these huge negatives that are so upsetting <laughs> uh, to see, still see. Uh, Garnacho is one of them. We'll talk about Hoyland a little later, I think. Uh, there are, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Garnacho was very good in this match. He's been He's been good lately. Yeah, the opposition one is really interesting, because personally, I feel like my intuition of Garnacho is that I'd expect him to be more impactful in the more transitional games, whereas I think what we've seen is a lot of actual productivity against teams that were specifically sitting really deep and yeah. trying to prevent United from scoring. Yeah, well, I think that's a big aspect of that is that he's um, he's so take-on forward and byline forward in terms of his approach to what he does in the final third that... I think you, you you just find that that is more effective that, that that has more added value in matches that are stagnant 
Whereas um, more open matches, you really don't need to be. You just need to play the play the play the passes. You know what I mean? Like play into space, find the, find the the open man because typically there's going to be spaces in these tra- in more transitional matches. Um, and I think that's still a bit of a deficiency of Garnacho's. Um, he's he, that's not to say that he's a selfish player. He he actually distributes quite a bit. More more to say that he doesn't pick the right passes at the right times. Um, yeah, I think it's less a thing of selfishness and more a thing of just making the right decision. And I think the other thing with Garnacho is, I mean, we've talked a lot about how he's better as a sub than as a starter, but maybe not so much why. I think a big component of this is that because he's so keen to jump into dual situations where he's on the ball, like try to dribble players, try to commit them, I think the circumstances tend to favor him more um, when he comes on as a sub because he's coming on against tired legs. So he's just, it just raises his percentages against, into these duels and into these dribbles so that he's just committing and he looks very, very good when he's committing because the success rate goes up by a lot. Um, and I guess the question is not so much how much are we expecting his dual success to improve as a starter over time, but how much we're expecting him to be able to figure out how to deal with the fact that his dual success will not be that successful against Premier League defenses when he's starting matches. I don't think he's just going to become a, you know, four dribbles per 90 Premier League winger. I, I, I don't see that as like an extremely realistic outcome for him. Which I think is why you don't start him this season. I, I don't think he takes on a starter's role at any point. And that's one of the reasons why. I, I just don't think he can sustain true impact across 90 minutes because so much of his game is... He gets so much value from running against tired legs. And that's not to say that he doesn't have value against fresh legs, but more just that to this team, if you're trying to achieve something, which now looks like, you know, hopefully still chasing top four, you got to use him in the most optimal way. And I see that as, you know, impactful goals late in games, uh, as opposed to as a starter, even though I agree he's far better out of possession than, than Rashford is. And that is a real thing that matters. And, and I think it'll, as Garnacho develops, maybe he starts to become a discussion. Well, we have seen Rashford being subbed earlier and earlier as these games have gone on. I'm not sure to what extent I agree with that, but I definitely think out of possession is a part of it. Um, Rashford's struggles out of possession have been a big part of opposition being able to get out of United's dominance when they have. Um, but to wrap up this match, I think the last thing I want to talk about is United got Newcastle in the next round. Presumably a difficult match. How important do you think it is to continue to go out and win in this cup? versus just using it as um, somewhere to rotate the squad, try new ideas, give rest to the first team players. Because, I mean, we saw that United are now 0-2 in the Champions League, and I don't think United are going to be winning the Premier League, but the top four fight is going to be big. So where does that leave United and the importance of these competitions, where I think last season they were seen as very important? Do you think that's still the case? The last time we spoke, I think I said I wouldn't mind going with a, a weak lineup against Palace for the purposes of resting, I've completely swung on that. I think at this point you have to win every match. Um, this, the, I, I just think the real concern here is, is morale and, uh, you know, this like this seesaw back and forth pendulum win loss, win loss, win loss is just not good for anyone. If you think it's mentally stressing for us as fans, I'm sure it's even more so for the players. And 
I think you just need to you need to get on a run when you when you get back from this international break. It's got to be win win win. Um, obviously, city the city match is, is a different beast, and and if you don't win that match, I don't think it has to be the end of the world. But you do have to go there and fight and get a result. Um, there, there really there cannot be any more. Ah, uh, we played well and and we didn't get the result. It's it's just not good enough anymore. Uh, we're we're out of position here where we've already lost four matches this season. We've lost two in the Champions League. You basically have to win out in the Champions League, or at the very least, win your next three and hope Bayern doesn't drop a single point. Um, so when I look at that, I think you need momentum. You need to go out and try to win this Newcastle match as well. Yeah, pretty much agree with all of that. Um, and with that, I think we can move to the next Crystal Palace match, which I guess the starting point is the set-piece error here, and then that goes into a lot of the common themes we've seen with this United side over the past few years. Let's start with the set-piece error. Is this just... Victor Lindelof losing his man and then an extremely good strike from Anderson? Or do you yeah. think there's more at play here? I mean... Amrabat also commits the foul. Which, yeah, which I hate pro- the foul. probably is unnecessary. I hate the foul. Um, but forget the foul for a second. You have to defend set piece as well. You have to win first contact authoritatively. Uh, United do not do that. It's an epidemic in the team. It has been for years. The fact that it hasn't been addressed is frankly, completely unacceptable. And it's a huge... Like, you, you talk about, like, oh, United seems to, like, have good stretches in a lot of these matches, and then they don't get good results. A big part of that is not... is these small margin things just not being cared for, it seems. Um, and you know what? You go 0-1 down to a side that wants to sit deep on you from a set piece. That's like classic Barclays. <laughs> that's what happens next. You don't score. Because you've, you've lost the game state battle on account of this seemingly small aspect of play... That you did, they did, they, they don't pay attention to. It's either that's they don't pay to attention to this. it. Yeah. Um, I, I really think that's sort of the story of this match. And so, like, do I look at that, this match and say that United have huge pressing problems? United have huge build up issues. For me, not so much. What I see in this match is something we've seen for so long, which is be strong at set pieces. It, it, and this is not even a height thing. Like, this team isn't even that small. It's like I don't even I don't think it's not that physical. It's an organization thing. You, you you can put yourself in a position to be more successful. There are smaller teams that are better at set pieces than this. Once you can see that set piece, we've seen some of the best all time teams go to Roy Hodgson's Crystal Palace and go down one nil or go down two one, and then they can't come back into the match. Um, and United are definitely not one of the best teams of all time, and so. I don't really think it's a surprise that they struggled to get back into this match. I think we both envisioned that from the second the Crystal Palace goal went in. And that's not, a, that's not a statement of hopelessness. It's a statement of, this is something that's difficult to do. Crystal Palace are in that place in the table, I think, where they're good enough to have the talent where if you can get them into a favorable state, they can see out the match in this way. I think they're good enough to do it. And so... It's not like they're playing like a talentless rollover team. It's hard to create chances against these sides. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just more that it's hard to create chances in the Premier League. It's, it's hard to fight game state in the Premier League. And United have been fighting game state a lot. They go down 1-0 a lot. They went down 1-0 against Tottenham. Uh, they went down 1-0 against... Forest. Forest. They went down 1-0 in this Palace match. Uh, they went down 1-0... Against Brighton and Brighton, yeah, and then against Brighton, you you can't keep doing this. Uh, it doesn't matter how good you are; you cannot concede first this often. 
And, and that's not to say that there weren't reasons that they conceded first. But in a lot of, in almost all of these matches, United are, are the better side for an early period. And then something happens such that, you know, they, they're, the ball transitions into their own half for a period. They lose a little bit of control. And then the first or second chance they concede is a goal. Um, and that's not to say, oh, woe is me. It, we've been unlucky to be conceding these chances. You, you, or rather to be conceding these goals from these chances. You just have to put yourself in a space where you aren't conceding chances this often before you score. Like you, you have to turn your periods of dominance into goals. And then you need to not let, you know, these 10, 15 minute periods where you're kind of scattered happen. Uh, and, and every match has one of these scattered periods. And I think the, the Palace match was less so. I don't even know that there was like a huge scattered period. It was more that this just set piece error. But the set pieces is just another part of it. Chaos at set pieces is just an extension of chaos in open play. Yeah, and then from there, like we say, struggled to break down a block. I actually think United created a fair few chances in this match. There were a couple of ball rolls across across the line. There were a couple of shots blocked really well by Palace defenders or saves made by Johnston. There were a couple of, um, I'd say, marginal refereeing calls, which, I mean, I I don't like talking about refs. I don't like debating the decisions, and I don't like saying that a team should depend on the refs to make the right calls to win a match, especially against Crystal Palace at home. But those things can go your way sometimes, and in this match, they didn't. I, again, I'm not here to complain about the refs and say it's the reason United lost, but it's a pretty stonewall penalty, in my opinion, that United didn't get. And then, yeah, they, they could have pushed the ball in a few times. Um, they didn't. And you know what? Stop falling behind. These things are a much smaller issue when you stop falling behind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, this match is more about game state than it is about, like, truly performing really poorly. I mean, what I'll say is, the the only other thing besides the don't go behind and don't get into these game states is this idea of outplaying, deserving to win, and disappointing. Um, and so I think where the disparities coming with United fans in this discourse is, often after a match like this, people like me will go out and tweet something like, United were better than the opposition in this match. And I think that's unequivocally true um i think that united were just clearly better than crystal palace in this game but i think there's a difference between united were better than crystal palace in this game and united were good enough in this game um what you want let let me put it this way right if you go and outplay the bottom half of the table um such that you give yourself a 60 percent chance of winning in every game you outplay the opposition the commentary of X deserved to win would be that United deserved to win with a 60% chance. But if Man City and Arsenal go and outplay teams and give themselves an 80% chance of winning every match, and United are only giving themselves a 60% chance of winning every match, then across 10 games, United are very rarely going to outperform Arsenal and City. And so that's where this margin of, you know, in this run of games, you beat Palace once you beat Brentford once and you lost to Palace the second time and you lost to Galatasaray that's where those margins come in like maybe across these matches United deserved more than half the wins but they definitely didn't play so dominantly that they put themselves in a position to win all four games which is what they need to be doing if they want to be competing on all fronts like some of the best teams in the Premier League are doing right now 
Um, and that's going to be a big theme over the next few weeks, I think, is United are a little bit weakened. They're also not the finished product of a side very clearly. And they're playing teams that they should be beating every single game. And I think that the margin to which they outplay these teams is the point of focus as opposed to the fact that they outplayed these teams and whether they did or not, because that that's out of question at this point. I think there were times in the last five years of United where they were getting outplayed by teams like this. And that is not what we're seeing right now. I think with, yeah, I mean, in the last four matches, I agree. I think with Brighton, I think no, Brighton Bri- match United Brighton, fully got outplayed. <laughs> yeah. I'd say Brighton and Bayern are different cases because A, they're better sides than these teams. And B, yes, United got outplayed in those matches. I don't think United should be getting outplayed by Brighton, but that's kind of besides the point. Um, in the context of breaking down teams um, and outplaying low blocks such that you give yourself a really good chance of winning the match. I don't think Brighton's really a good conversation point for that. Um, but by and large, yeah, I think the point is, A, just because United were the better team in most of these games... It doesn't mean they should win most of these games or will win most of these games. And B, just because they were the better team in most of these games doesn't mean that's good enough for what they're aspiring to. All right. I think with that, we can go to Galatasaray. Yeah. I think this is this is the important one, right? Like, I think this is really where it, this is the one to talk about. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, of all the matches here, I think this is the one that dents the season the most because you needed to win this game after losing to Bayern. If you want to be in the in the knockout stage of the Champions League, this is Manchester United. You should be. United definitely have one of the best 16 squads in Europe. United are fortunate in that Galatasaray and Copenhagen drew, which kind of puts a dent in both of their prospects if United can go win the next three matches. Um, and then you're going back to Bayern Munich with the hope of... I, I think a draw would be a more than 50% chance of going through. A win would probably be a definitely through. You're definitely a loss would points, still but... have... A chance of going through with nine, but I don't think you want to depend on that. So basically, this match was really important. And but uh, but I'm just going to throw that. I'm just going to throw this out there. You have to beat Galatasaray away, Copenhagen home and away, and you have to draw Bayern at home. At this point, this team is good enough to draw Bayern at home. Like so, so I don't even feel this bad about this. It's like you either go do this because you're you are what you're supposed to be, or you don't, and it means something is horribly wrong. So just go do it. Like, like that's how I look at it. But sorry, go ahead. I know this. That's a bit. Of a I mean, side. I, I kind of agree. I, I guess I'll start with this. To what extent do you think United were the better side in this match before Casemiro gets sent off? Because I think it very clearly fell apart once United had ten men, and not only did they have ten men, but I think they tried to score with ten men. Yeah. And almost did. Then it fell apart. Yeah. So I mean, you before have before that. How yeah. good do you think United were in this match? I didn't think not they that were. Good. <laughs> yeah. I, I think this was easily the worst performance of the four, even before the red card. But yeah. I also do think they were the better side. Okay, so a few things about Galatasaray before I, I jump into that. Galatasaray last year won the Turkish League. They massively outperformed their expected goal metrics. They were very poorly organized uh, out of possession. They had a lot of old players who really couldn't cut it out of possession. And then they just kind of worked magic uh, with the ball. Um I think a lot of people who watch Turkish football would tell you they weren't the best side in Turkey last season. Um, and, and not a lot about that has changed this season. Uh, this was not a particularly good side. They were horribly organized in this match. There was tons of space to transition into. United did it a little bit. Um, like they create, United created a lot of chances actually in this match. Could have been, you know, could have scored three or four goals. 
did not, which is, is it, that's a pattern at this point. And then again, this is the whole losing control after periods, after good periods. Just honestly, in this one, this one is like, I think the main thing here is huge errors in the final, in the, in the first third, both in possession and out of possession, uh, in stretched states. Um, and the reason those things happened is predominantly to do with decisions on the ball that meant United didn't have control. Um, so yeah, were United the better side in this match until the red card? Yes. But why is the, the margin was not that big and it's absurd that the margin was not that, that big. This Galatasaray side would finish bottom half in the Premier League. I'm quite confident of that. I've seen them play quite. Oh well. yeah. Bottom half for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, they've signed multiple players who are among their best that were playing for teams that were in the bottom, bottom half in the Premier yeah. League. Um, um, uh, like amongst the most disorganized, they would be amongst the most disorganized sides in the Premier League. Uh, and, and, and frankly, all their goals were absolutely handed to them. Uh, one of them is a, is a long ball into the box. It's honestly, the first goal is pretty unlucky in my opinion. Definitely a mistake from Dalo. I think the way people were talking about this is a bit ridiculous though, honestly. I, honestly, but- I don't, I'm, I, I don't even think it's a mistake from Dalo. I'll be honest with you. Does he get pushed around a little bit? Yes, but he's still in front of the shooter and forces him to take a bad shot. Like, this is not a huge chance. Yeah. If it doesn't go in, we are not talking about this. We are, like, and, and that's why, that's why I really, I try, we don't have a lot of time on this episode, so we're doing goal-centric analysis here, but that's why goal-centric analysis is, just, like, so flawed, because this would have just been, like, a speculative long ball that ended in a half chance, if this ball doesn't get scuffed into the, into the goal. Um, so this is, yeah. for me, not the big one. We have to talk about the second goal. First of all, don't concede the ball in dangerous areas like this. Second of all, you have to mark your men in transition. And this is something that's driving me completely nuts at this point. Casemiro has made this mistake like seven times this season where he's just jogging in transition and doesn't mark someone that is clearly his man. Like if, if I don't know how he has not been dropped yet. It's incredible to me. He's not doing anything right except for scoring the odd goal. Like I'm, 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 I'm astonished yeah. at this at this point. He was subbed at. He was like, subbed in this last match. Halftime. Yeah, he should not come back into the side. You have other players. He should not come back into the side. It's shameful because it looks like an, like it, it, it's so casual. It looks like an effort thing. I don't know if it is, but it really does. It looks like it to me because this goal is incredibly preventable. You could you can easily turn around this Galatasaray side and form form yourself back into a block if Casemiro just follows his man. And for some reason, he's just, yeah. he's, he's jogging like he's out for a stroll. Um, I remember this now. I also think Lindelof does the thing where he follows the man out of the defense yep. and then is quite soft. So when Lindelof does this, the problem is that you either don't follow the man and let him go, or once you follow the man, the play is ending with that pass. You're either winning the ball or you're, or you're following the man. Because what he's done is, when he comes out of that line, he creates a gap that then Varane... Dalo and um, Amrabat have to figure out how they're going to close. And they have about three seconds to do it once the pass is played before the ball is on the last line going towards goal. Um, so the summary of that is Lindelof does this a lot because he's relatively soft as a defender um, and he's often very man-oriented. He will follow a striker dropping deep and then allow that striker to play the pass or turn. And once you do that, Bad things happen. Um, 
in this case, I, I think the primary error is Casemiro failing to track his man. Or I guess you could argue the spacing of the defense made Varane kind of irrelevant in this play. But I think that'd be harsh on Varane because of the thing from Lindelof. But Lindelof needs to needs to foul this player. And then Casemiro needs to track his man. And these are, again, basic errors that lead to the goal. Side note, Amrabat, for me, not really a left back. I don't think we should do that unless, you know... I, what else do you do I right mean, now? <laughs> exactly. Well, so this is one place where I will point to the injuries is that, I mean, you can play Lindelof at left back, I guess, but that's your only real option. Like you could try putting another central midfielder at right back and then putting Dalo at left back. I don't think any of these are clear. Ten Hag should be doing this options and I'm baffled that he's not, which is why it's hard to be upset about Amrabat playing left back. I think this is just the clearest example of the injuries being a huge problem in these last few games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your left center back and your three left backs are out injured. That's obviously going to create a problem, but, and you're right. Amrabat makes a couple mistakes in this match. This is definitely Amrabat's worst match uh, so far. All of that said, I think for the most part, it was a tertiary issue. The third goal, which we're skipping the penalty right now, but the third goal happens after you're on a red card. Weird things happen. Most teams, including really, really good teams, when they go down a man, are become bad teams. This is just a, a, a truth. You know, is it possible to go win a match and outplay a team down to 10 men? Yes, but most teams don't. And I don't think that should be a primary concern at this point, by the way. I think... It goes back to the do plan A better thing. Like, it, it's really impressive to see a team go out with 10 men and perform, but I'm not expecting United to spend a lot of this season down to 10 men. And so I don't think it should be a, it should be a primary concern at this point. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Um, so let, let's talk about the penalty. Yeah. Let's break this down into two. So first thing I want to discuss Onana. I mean, we've seen a number of shot stopping errors from Onana. Um, but this wasn't a shot stopping error. This was a, on-ball error. I mean, I think we were expecting this to come at some point. It does feel kind of like a double standard because when De Gea does this, we say like, oh, he can't play the ball. But when Onana does it, I say, you know, this we were expecting this forward. to come. <laughs> I don't think this is something Onana's likely to do. Asterisk. The asterisk because he seems to be very out of form. And... I just want to make clear that, like, people who were suggesting that United sign Onana were not saying that they should compromise shot-stopping in favor of ball-playing ability. That's not what people were saying. They were saying that Onana is a good shot-stopper, and I think we still believe that. This is just a patch where he's playing badly. I think on this podcast, we often talk about, you know, you criticize players for things that they do repeatedly that are going to be issues going forward, as opposed to criticizing players for making mistakes that they don't usually make. Because, like, you know, things happen. Great strikers miss easy chances. Um, I don't know. Uh, great defenders get beaten 1v1. Great goalkeepers with the ball make mistakes on the ball. It's not... It doesn't matter that much. Like, it matters in the in the game, but is this, like, an, it's a huge issue for Onana? No. So we set it aside, right? As for the shot-stopping errors, um, yeah, he looks lacking for confidence. However, I agree. I, I maintain he, he's a very good shot-stopper. Uh... This is fluky. If he can get his confidence back, he will be a good shot stopper. Uh, yeah. Shot stopping is like a very, for what it's worth, 
finicky, high variance thing. You can't evaluate a player on four or ten or even twenty matches for their shot stopping. Uh, this is the kind of thing that bears out in skill over like 50, 100, 200 matches. Um, we've said that before. We said that when we signed him, that this is like, you know, a very possible outcome. Yeah. Like that, that's just, that's the deal. You have to have patience here. If you want to see Bayern Deer play, I, I mean, you can, you can try it. He's a worse goalkeeper than Onana. I bet my life on it. <laughs> so I think it would be a mistake. If, if you think it's a confidence thing and you think maybe that, would be helpful for him in that way, have a little competition or perceived competition. I don't know Andre Onana the human. I don't know how he'd respond to that. So maybe. Um, but if you want to talk about like pure talent, this is a good player having a bad stretch, and I still believe that. So, okay. If you look at Onana's season so far, there have been what ten matches that United have played. It's been eight in the Premier League, two, in the, so eleven matches. Onana's played all eleven. Pretty sure he's played every minute. He's made, he made the big shot stopping error against Bayern. He made the big shot stopping error against Brentford. And then he made this ball playing error against Galatasaray. He also, in the Wolves match, he probably should have conceded a penalty. Um, for what it's worth, I don't think the Brentford one is as big, is nearly as big as the Bayern one. Like, I, I just, I think shots like that go in sometimes. He should have saved it. I agree. Should have been, really, he should have been in a better position more than anything else. It's, it's a, it's an error. But, like, I don't think it's a howler. It's a howler in the context of him having made a mistake midweek and made a mistake in the previous Champions League match, so it gets inflated. But yeah, this, this is the kind of thing where, like, when errors get concentrated into a small period of time, it's really hard to overcome that over the course of the season, even if you stop making errors. Whereas if he'd made all of these errors over the course of the season, we would just be like, yeah, those were the errors he made this season. I mean, obviously, that's like, duh. Yeah, he's ma- if he if he made errors less frequently, we would talk about it less. But I think it's also important to realize that like the distribution of these things can sometimes create a false perception of of the truth uh, of of the reality of his skill level. Um, yeah. So anyway, go ahead, Eric. go ahead. Eric. So two things here. One is small sample size alert on Onana's performance here. You can't use these numbers in this sample size to judge ability. But before the Brentford game, Onana was minus 0.3 goals saved above average, which means his goals conceded, um, taken away from his expected goals based on shot quality, so post-shot expected goals, was negative 0.3. He saved 0.3 goals less across the entire Premier League season, across the seven matches, than would be expected based on the quality of shots taken against him. After the Brentford game, it was one, it was minus one. So that error was two thirds of the negative value that he contributed over the course of the season. Yeah. In the Premier League. In the Champions League, he's minus 1.2, which admittedly is bad. Really bad. Um, very bad across two matches. Here's the thing. When we say Onana is a good shot stopper, I think, I think there's an epidemic in the discourse of like people pretend that A, the Premier League is this magical vacuum that once you enter the Premier League, nothing else you've done prior matters. And that's simply not true. Number two, people don't watch other leagues. Things that happen before these players arrive in the Premier League just don't occur to them. When we say Onana is a good shot stopper, it's not even based on our opinion of goalkeeping technique. It's not based on things we believe good shot stoppers have. 
It's based on a sample size of five years in the Eredivisie, Serie A, Champions League, where Onana is 25 goals saved above average across his career. So we're clear. He is, since we've, since this data exists publicly, he is the best shot stopper in the Champions League. Uh, and that's across two very deep, uh, knockout runs and tons of matches in the group stage. Yeah. So in the Champions League, he's 20, he's 20 goals above in the sample size. He's five goals above average in his domestic career across Eredivisie, Serie A, and Premier League. So if you want to go and say this is because of Dutch football, it's not because of Dutch football because he's 20 goals above average in the Champions League. If you want to go and say there's some problem with his domestic performance, he performed above average domestically in Dutch football. He was about nine goals saved above average in his Dutch football career. And then in Italian football, he was minus 2.7 across 24 games, which is which is not that big. That's like average variance for a goalkeeper's shot-stopping performance. We have five years of evidence that this is a good shot-stopper. And if he suddenly turns into a bad shot-stopper, if that happens, I don't think the point here is... I mean, I think straight up the arguments about, like, you know, they said get a good ball-playing goalkeeper are in bad faith. So I'm not even going to address those. But I think... Even if he were to become a bad shot stopper, I don't think that makes this a bad recruitment decision because the body of football that United used to evaluate signing Onana was a good five years of football performances. A young goalkeeper who is also good on the ball. I think that's all I got. Yeah, I mean, I'll put it this way. I don't want to tell anyone who's listening to what to believe, but I think you can frame it like this. You have five years of evidence that he's good at this thing. You have about 10, 11 games of evidence that he's not. The only difference being the 11 games of evidence are the most recent and in a different environment. I think, personally, it's incredibly A, paternalistic, and B, simple to think that the Premier League is such a different environment and Manchester United is so high pressure compared to Inter Milan, where he played in a Champions League final, and Ajax, where he played in a Champions League semi, in two legs of a Champions League semifinal. Yeah, full, full stop. Especially it's, for it's incredibly paternalistic. Exactly. I think it's ridiculous. You might not believe that, but I think if you lay out the evidence, it looks pretty ridiculous as a take. But we'll see how it plays out. I still think end of the season, we're talking about Andre Onana as one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League. Awesome. So Onana fails the pass. Here's my question. If you're Casemiro, you can't get to that ball. Do you commit the foul? No. <laughs> Obviously not. If you look at the <laughs> like if you look at the angle he has, like all right, a few things. First of all, you're already on a yellow, so you're getting sent off if you commit that foul in the box. Guaranteed. No way you're getting out of that. Second of all, the angle that by the time Casemiro's getting there, the angle for the shot isn't even that good. Like if you freeze the frame where I forget who he, who it is that he fouls. Is it Icardi? I don't remember. Doesn't matter. Freeze the frame where he's where Casemiro commits the foul. The, the chance is not that big anymore. It's like probably like a point one five point one xg chance. Um, at most, it's like one in five. And instead, he decides to take himself out of the game, put the side on ten men, and give them like an eighty percent conversion rate because that's what penalties are. 
like it's it's crazy the decision he makes here. It, it this is like the biggest swing in win probability for United of any action in the whole game, including the goals. It's a penalty to go up three two and automatically down to ten men. Even if the the shot has a one hundred percent chance of going in, it's still debatable. You don't do it. I know you don't do it. You, you would don't do commit it. the foul because you would have te- you would have eleven men to come back into the game and fifteen minutes of this match to play. All right, so. Uh, last note on this Galatasaray match, and we do have to get moving here. Um, Hoyland, two great goals. Is he starting to get into that place where we think he's going to begin to put the goals away and get United season going in attack? Yeah, he looks. He just looks fantastic, doesn't he? He looked on like he was. He he had a third goal in this match also that got disallowed because he was just barely offside, and he took that chance fantastically. He just looks like a different beast physically and very composed. Three very different finishes here. I think if you've had player of the season votes for this like for this year, he he comes in pretty high up. I, I think he's been fantastic. Yeah, I think the cool thing about this is I don't even think he's playing particularly well by his standards. I think the things he's doing are the super replicable parts of his game. And where he's had a couple of slips and and bumps along the way in these few matches are things that I expect to get better. So I actually think what we're seeing from him is perfectly replicable um, over the course of a season. And I think he's actually, we're only just seeing the beginning of this. There isn't really much more to say than that. Like like you said, he looks really fast. He put Strakosha under a ton of pressure under uh, in possession against Brentford. His movement has been solid. He's constantly on the last line. He's fashioning out goal-scoring opportunities, even when it's just him in the box. Um, his hold-up play has often been really good. I think it could be even better. Um, and I think it's realistic for him to get even better. Yeah, I'm excited about this. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, let's talk about... Brentford. Casemiro gives away the ball in build-up. Uh, Brentford go and score. It's an Onana error, no doubt about it. United are down 1-0 again. Casemiro gets subbed at halftime. Second half, it's Christian Eriksen playing in the midfield pivot. Were United better in that second half without Casemiro? Yes, 100%. How good do you think that second half was? I personally didn't think the chance creation was that prolific until the last 10 minutes when Garnacho started hitting the byline. Um, The three goals were all excellent for me. I mean, one was disallowed, obviously. I know Marcel kind of shinned it into an own goal, but hey, there were numbers flooding the box. There were runners hitting the byline. There were winning fouls and set pieces. There was... Like, when we talk about systematically causing chaos, not relying on individual brilliance, I think there's some there's some issues here with this discussion because you have... You, you, you are allowed to rely on your individuals to win matches. Man City are allowed to rely on Holland to build their strategy around optimizing Holland. However, when we talk about systematically creating chaos, these are the things we're talking about. Getting your wingers on the ball on the byline in crossing positions. Getting runners in, into the box so that the wingers can hit them. I think when United create those things, it's hard to go, oh, they didn't systematically create enough chances to win the match. And also, I think with Ericsson, Amrabat, and Mount for a while, uh, Bruno, largely players who are technically good and positive contributors in possession, a lot of positive contributors out of possession, I think this was in terms of possession and field tilt one of the most dominant halves we've seen from United this season. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, again, you got to talk about game, game state. state. United go down 1-0. Uh, obviously, you know, you have uh, the Onana error, but more importantly, I think I've said this before on this podcast, I often feel 
that the biggest error is the first error in defensive breakdowns because once one player has failed in their responsibilities, it's very, very difficult. You have to basically have to do make value-added defensive uh, actions in order to make up for that failure. Because once the system breaks down, it's sort of a free-for-all. Casimir giving up that ball under basically no pressure is a huge problem. If you stop playing him, it's no longer a problem. Maybe I'll have an egg on my face when we talk about this in a week, if Casemiro doesn't, or in two weeks, if Casemiro doesn't play in the next few matches and we look exactly the same. But I really do think if you take him out of the side, get a lot more control, and you wind up with fewer of these game state issues, which means you can get deeper into matches and put greater pressure on opposition and get ahead and then win matches. I really do believe that. So I want to talk, just say that. Um, and obviously Lindelof doesn't do well here. Onana is mispositioned. Uh, he's too close to the right post if you are shooting, the left post if you're Onana. Um, yeah. Awesome. And obviously incredible limbs at the end. I think for the most part that covers it. Is there anything else you want to add here going into the international break? No, I think, I think, I think we covered it there. Uh, Key points being get more technically secure players in the side. Uh, minimize, especially in early buildup, find a way to just not have non-technically secure players on the ball in early buildup. Uh, effort out of possession. Maintain control as a result of those first two things. Get ahead in game state, win matches. And United can still do that. Do I believe they will? I'm not sure. Uh, at this point, it's like, show me why I should believe, as opposed to I do believe. Uh, but yeah, that's where we're at. Awesome. Everyone, apologies for last week's upload. Apologies for the inconsistent Tuesdays. We're looking to get back to Mondays next week. If you're still listening, thank you for listening. Thank you for your constant support. And hopefully we'll have some more positive, or universally positive at least, things to talk about in the coming weeks with a couple more easy gains for United to gain more momentum. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.